Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Last week we began a series in the tiny but powerful book of Jude. And uh, we gave a general outline of the letter. We just kind of took a 30,000-foot view uh, as we kind of described it. We said we're going to kind of zoom out and we're going to kind of look at the whole forest. So we just kind of gave an outline and saw kind of, it's, you know, it's a tiny book, 25 verses. Uh, it's just one chapter. That's why it's weird. You don't say Jude chapter 1. It's, you know, I mean, you could, but there's only one chapter. So, uh, so uh, we, we took that 30,000-foot view of the, of the whole letter. We looked at the whole forest. Today, what we're going to begin to do is kind of come down and zoom in and start to then examine every tree and every branch and turn over every leaf. And so what that means for us is that we're going to take now much smaller sections, sometimes maybe just a verse or two, And we're going to really soak in them. We're going to take our time to explore everything that's there. And so I'm hoping to get through all of verse 1 today. (laughs) That's kind of where we're going. Let's read. I'm actually going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll pray and dive right in. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Father, we just, um, we pray that as we begin to study this letter that you have breathed out, that you have inspired, I pray, God, that you um, would just be here with us in a special way, that you would um, give us, open the eyes of our hearts, give us revelation, Speak to us personally, speak to us um, as a church and speak to us individually as just people in whatever situations and circumstances that we're in. I pray that for um, those of us in the areas where we need challenge, that we would be challenged today. And I pray for those of us in areas where we just need to be comforted and loved on and hugged and encouraged by your word, that you would do that this morning. And more than anything, I pray that you would help us just to kind of tune out every other distraction and focus on you and understand what you're saying to us through your word this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 So verse one, uh, and I know it seems kind of crazy to only tackle one verse uh, in, in the letter, but there's, to me, there's just so much happening even in the first Verse. This is obviously verses one and two constitute what, what would be the introduction for this letter. So, so the author is just introducing himself and he addresses whom he's writing to. And then he gives a benediction, which is just like a kind of speaks a blessing over them. And that's what we just read in verses one and two. So he's introducing himself. And who is the author? The author is Jude. So first word of this letter is him identifying himself. Jude. In the Greek... That is short for Judas. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? And so and we say, uh-oh, but listen, it's true. We, why, why, there's a reason we do that, because the name Judas is kind of tainted for us. 
right? Uh, it was actually a very common name in Jesus' day. There are four or five of them mentioned in the New Testament alone. But because of one, that is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Christ with a kiss, sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and that's how he was led away to be tried and crucified. Uh, one of the disciples of Jesus who betrayed him, his name was Judas Iscariot. Because of that one, the name has now become tainted, and it's synonymous with traitor. We name our kids all kinds of things, Elijah and Peter, and, and we name them all kinds of, we'll even name them Jacob, which means like deceiver, you know? But when's the last time you heard somebody name their kid Judas, you know? Very common name in Jesus' day, but nobody does it anymore because that name is just so synonymous with traitor. A one who fell, we don't even name our dogs Judas, right? We'll name our dogs Caesar or Brutus or something, whatever. We won't even name our dogs Judas. Okay? And so if there are multiple Judases mentioned in the New Testament, which Judas is this? So Judas, Judas. And which Judas is this? Well, I'll tell you right now, it's not Judas Iscariot for a bunch of obvious reasons. Um, but he's actually going to go on to describe himself here, and, and his description of himself will actually give us a pretty strong clue as to who he is. Now, listen, you can learn a lot about a person by the way that they talk about themselves. Right. Have you ever met someone who constantly brags about themselves or constantly kind of has to tell their own little hero stories or their one-up stories or feels the need to incessantly bring up their accolades or achievements, right? Like, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's one of the, you know, you learn a lot about a person by the way that they identify themselves and what they feel like is important to tell you about themselves, right? And so how does Jude describe himself? He gives us two very important things here in, fir in the first verse. So he says Jude, and then he says this. This is number one, a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. Other translations would, would say bond servant of Jesus Christ. It's the Greek word doulos, and it means a slave for life. It is a very strong word. It means someone who belongs to someone else, someone who belongs to another without any ownership rights of their own. It's a heavy word. And, and Jude chooses it for a reason. A bondservant, a slave for life, someone who belongs to someone else without any ownership rights of their own. Ironically, though, one commentary says that this term was used with the highest dignity in the New Testament, namely used by believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. They didn't say, like, oh, I'm a slave. They said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. They said it with pride. They said it with dignity. They said, everyone's good. Remember the old Bob Dylan song, if you're old enough to remember that. You got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. We're, we're all servants of somebody. We're either serving self, sin, Satan, or serving the Lord. That's the reality. You may think you're absolutely free and not serving anyone, but you're either in bondage to your own desires and your own flesh and your own, you're serving yourself, you're a slave to your sinful desires, is what the scripture says, or you're a servant of the devil or both simultaneously, or you're serving the Lord. The scripture just says, choose your master. One will domineer you, you will dom your flesh is not your friend, okay? Your sinful desires are not your friend. Uh, the enemy, Satan, is not your friend, 
He's not for you, okay? Scripture just says, choose your master. And so that's why all, all in the New Testament, all these apostles, all these disciples of the Lord would say proudly with the highest dignity, I'm a bondservant, I'm a slave for life to Jesus Christ because he's the one that gives me abundant life. Being a bondservant of Christ brings absolute freedom. So Jude recognizes, though, it's interesting, Jude recognizes and important. He recognizes that his life does not belong to him. He has no ownership rights over his own life. He understands that his life belongs to Jesus, and so he willingly lives to serve him. And I had to ask myself, like, do I see my life this way? Like, do you see your life this way? Like, do you see your life as belonging to you? We hear this stuff all the time. Hey, hey, bro, get off my back. It's my life. I can do whatever I want to do. It's my life, man. I've said it. So, hey, well, it's my life. You know, I'll do me, you do you. Like, this is my life. You know? There, I was, a, I'm a big, uh, I like the band Pearl Jam. Judge me for it or not. I don't know. It's like, I like Pearl Jam, okay? They had a song called I Am Mine back in the day. And, and some of the lyrics are like this. It says, I know I was born and I know that I'll die. The in-between is mine. I am mine. Good song, bad theology. Good song, bad theology. But do you see your life that way? Because many people do. In fact, most people do. It's my life. I own it. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. It's my life. It belongs to me. Or do you and I, like Jude, see our lives as belonging to Jesus? I don't own my own life. It's not mine. It's on loan to me by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This is what the scripture says. The word of God says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, imagine I gave my son a $100 bill. So I'm busy. I, I got to go to work. But son, here's a $100 bill. This is my $100 bill. I'm just loaning it to you. And here's a shopping list. Here's a list of groceries that I need you to go and pick up. Right? And when I come back, I need you to return the change to me, if there's any left, with receipts. And I want the stuff that I asked you to purchase with my $100. I'm just letting you use it so you can do what I want you to do with it. And then I come back and he didn't do that. He didn't get what I wanted him to get with my $100. But he says, you know what, dad? Uh, I'm like, where's my stuff? And he goes, oh, no, no, I didn't get any of that. Like, I didn't want to do any of that. Like, as soon as you put it in my hands, I thought, oh, it, this is my $100. And I went and got a bunch of Star Wars stuff. <laughs> right? Like, are we going to have a problem? Absolutely, we're going to have a problem. I'm going to be like, boy, that wasn't your $100 to spend however you wanted to spend. That was my $100 I loaned to you for the purpose of spending it the way that I wanted you to spend it. And so now we're going to have to reckon with one another here. And that's what our lives are like, is what Scripture's saying. Your life doesn't belong to you. It's on loan, and God actually wants you to spend it a certain way. And so when we take that final breath and we're face-to-face -face with our Creator, 
are, are many of us going to have those moments where it was like, well, I know, but I wanted to spend it like this. So see, a bond servant of Jesus Christ is someone who gets this. Someone who says, my life doesn't even belong to me. I have no ownership rights over myself. God, you've given me life. This is your life. You've given it. You can take it at any given point. How do you want me to spend it? I live to serve you. That's what it means to be a bond servant, a doulos, a slave for life of Jesus Christ. Jude gets this. He starts his letter with it. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Then he gives us a second descriptor of himself. And this is where we're going to kind of key in on who exactly this is that's writing this, this letter. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and here's number two, brother of James. Brother of James. So what we can learn from this statement is that this is not the Jude that's listed as one of the early apostles. Okay? It's a different Jude. Okay? This is Jude, the brother of James. And now, stay with me, because we're like, okay, this is Jude, the brother of James. Which James? <coughs> right? Which James? Because that matters. And let me, I'll just spare you the in-depth study of the different Jameses. We almost went there, okay? But I'm going to spare you that this morning, okay? Because uh, I'm already breaking down this verse enough. But I will spare you the in-depth study of the different Jameses who are mentioned in the New Testament and just say that it is generally agreed that this James mentioned here is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so if you want to jot down a couple notes, Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, you can go study that kind of on your own. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 1. This is the James who is the head of the church in Jerusalem. The one who wrote the letter of James. So when you're flipping through your Bible and you see that there's a letter of James, that's this James. So Jude and James, they're brothers. Okay? And, and Galatians 1 helps identify exactly who that James is. Actually identifies that James as, stay with me, that James is the brother of Jesus. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul's writing says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, some of you have already put this together. If James is the brother of Jesus, and Jude is the brother of James, that means that Jude is also the brother of Jesus. Okay? So, Joseph and Mary had other children. So the miraculous, immaculate conception that was Jesus, Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's how Jesus was, was incarnated, was born into the world, okay? But Joseph and Mary were married, and they had more children. They would be half-brothers and sisters of Jesus, okay? James is one of them, and Jude says, I am the brother of James, which makes him also the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus. Good. And the scripture affirms this. Look with me at Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, talking about Jesus, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And so James and Jude, the Jude that is writing this letter that we're studying, are the brothers of Jesus. Interestingly, we know, jot this one down, jot down John chapter 7, verse 5. This is all for your own study later if you want to follow up after this. 
We know from this verse, we know from John chapter 7 verse 5, that none of the Lord's brothers actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah until after he rose from the grave. Until after the resurrection. In fact, even his own brothers during his earthly ministry said, you've gone mad. You're, you're a little crazy. Jesus, what are you talking about? They, didn't, they were skeptics until, wait a minute, well, you, were, you were killed three days ago. And all of a sudden, oh, it's true. That's a trippy thought. You can imagine how hard that would be? It's crazy. So we knew that James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, didn't, didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. After the resurrection, they seemed to grasp it and began to serve him with their whole lives. So what I want to, what, the reason I want to kind of pull that out and spend our time in that is that even though Jude is the brother of Jesus, he doesn't use that link to identify himself here. We had to trace that down. He's not looking to puff himself up or name drop, but he describes himself as the slave of Jesus, as the servant of Jesus. Do you see the humility that Jude has here? He's humbled himself. He could have said, listen up, I'm about to write you a letter, and I'm Jesus' brother, so you better pay attention. <laughs> he didn't do that. He said, I'm Jude. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's amazing. And apparently this kind of humility was a family trait because look at how James, his brother, introduces himself in the letter that he wrote. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude's brother James, also a brother of Jesus, introduces himself in his letter as a servant of Jesus. So both James and Jude, though they were brothers of Jesus, identified themselves primarily as servants of Jesus. As those who belong to Jesus, do not own their own lives, but live to serve him. And I pray that we would be that sold out. I pray that we would be that sold out. Now, who is he writing to? He's writing, uh, we're going to talk about the audience. This little section B, okay? It's still in verse 1. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And then he tells us who, who he's writing to. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, we know because of this these descriptions that he's writing to Christians, but we don't know exactly who or where he's writing to. So, so he's writing to an unknown to us community of Christians. So that's why we would call this a general letter or a general epistle. But we know that he's writing to Christians, to believers, because of how he describes them. He gives three things that are powerful, and I want to close with these today because I hope they would impact us and we would understand if we are in Christ, this is our identity as well. Three things. Number one, called to those who are called if you have come to Jesus it's because you were called it's because you responded to the call of God John chapter 6 we'll rattle through some verses here real quick John chapter 6 verse 44 and verse 65 Jesus said no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. If you've come to Jesus, it's because the Father drew you to him. 
Verse 65, and, and Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. What a gift. <clears throat> Look at John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. You thought you chose Jesus. You thought you decided. Yes, we did. We have choices. We have decisions that we do make. But if you've come to Christ, look, look at this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He says, you didn't chose me, I chose you. You thought you made a decision for me. You made that decision because I drew you. And my grace and my love, when you heard them and when you saw them and experienced them, were irresistible to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. In the New King James, it says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God, look, look at this, from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel, called you by the gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were called chosen and called by God. Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are what? Called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And look at this amazing link. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's an amazing link. There's a sermon right there, okay? That God foreknew you from the foundation of the world and, and knew where you were going and what was happening and your choice. And it says he knew and he, so he foreknew and he predestined and then he called you and those whom he called, he justified. That is, made you right with God the Father and those whom he justified and made right with God the Father, he glorified. That is, one day you will experience the glory of God for eternity because God started that link from the beginning, from the foundation of the world chose and called you we only came to Jesus because he called us what does it mean to be called obviously the Bible speaks of calling in several ways we've already seen in these verses that we are called to salvation listen the gospel call goes out to everyone we proclaim the gospel to the world but not all will respond in faith we know that for those who do, for those who respond to the gospel call in faith, the Bible describes them as having been called to salvation. So the gospel call goes out to everyone, and we choose how we respond. And for those who respond in faith, those are called, the, the Bible describes those, us, as called to salvation. But the Bible also talks about calling in a few other ways. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to rattle off a bunch of verses, but I just want to give you some descriptors, Okay. For time's sake, we're going to have to go through this relatively quickly. But the Bible says we are called to be children of God, not just called into a transactional relationship with a distant being. We're called to be his children. We're called to be children of God. It says we are called to be saints. Saints are not just those whom some ecumenical council gets together and decides had enough whatever in their life to earn sainthood. Saints are everyone who is a child of God. Scripture calls you saints. It says we're called to be saints. 
says we're called to be sanctified or holy. That is, we're called to be set apart different from the world. We're called to live different. We're called to be purified and, 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 and to grow in godliness. We're called to be servants. We talked about what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. We're called to be servants. Romans 8, 28, we already read it, but it says, we are called according to the purpose of God. What does that mean? God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for calling you to him. Your life has purpose, whether you realize that or not. God has called you for a purpose. One of my favorites, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, tells us that we are called to the hope of an eternal inheritance. Actually, this is too important. Let me, let me flip this one. If you have your Bible, flip to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He's praying for them that they would have the eyes. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You have been called to a hope, to live with a present hope in what? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It says, you, do you understand the hope that you have? You've been called to a hope, a living hope. First Peter would say, we've been born again into a living hope. We've been called to live with hope, and that hope is in Christ and our eternal inheritance in him. That means you can live every present day with the hope of eternal inheritance. That's amazing calling. It's part of your calling. If you've been called to Christ, that's what you've been called to. You've been called to hope. It's amazing. And all those amazing things, and then Ephesians 4.1 would tell us that we should then walk worthy of our calling. I urge you then, in light of all these amazing things, then walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says we should be diligent then to confirm our calling. He says, confirm your, be diligent to confirm your calling, to confirm the fact that I have been called and I am in Christ. How can I confirm that? He gives a bunch of character qualities that we should see growing and developing in us. He says, be diligent to confirm your calling. Be sure. Be sure that you are in Christ. And so this idea being introduced right at the beginning of the letter by Jude, this idea, what he does is right at the beginning, Jude emphasizes the high and holy calling of God on their lives. It's like, Calling encapsulates all of that. It says those who are called, called to salvation as children of God, called to be saints, called to be sanctified, called to be servants, called to a life of hope and an eternal inheritance. That's an amazing thing. Jude's like, hey, you were called by God and it means all of that. And if you're in Christ, this is your calling as well. But if you're not in Christ, I pray that you would sense the call of God this morning and respond Number two, the second way he describes those he's writing to, he says, to those who are called, and then number two is beloved. Beloved, still in verse one. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God. This word is amazing. When I dove into this this week, this, this word is amazing. Listen to this, because if you're in Christ, this is what you are. This is what, this is what scripture calls you. The word beloved means dearly loved, precious, adored, cherished, 
treasured, prized. He says, you are called and you are dearly loved. You are precious. You are adored. You are cherished. You are treasured. You are prized. And notice, he's speaking to those who are beloved in God the Father. Right? That's why we say this is for believers and not just for everybody. So not every promise of Scripture. Sometimes we go, oh, look at what the Scripture says to you, to everybody. And I don't know what, you know, we don't always know who's in Christ and who's not. So, so not everything in Scripture is for everybody. There are promises in Scripture that do not apply to unbelievers. There are amazing rewards that are mentioned in promises, great and precious promises that are made in the Scripture that are not made to everyone. They are made to children of God. They are made to those who are beloved in God the Father. So I know this is going to, like, you know, upset some people, not going to be here, but like this upsets some doctrine of the world that we just go, oh, the, the brotherhood of, of mankind. And I understand what we're saying when we say that, but the reality is we're like, oh, we're all children of God. That's No, that's not biblically accurate. The scripture, the scripture actually is pretty clear that not everyone is a child of God. If you want to study that, write down these verses. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. I could give you a bunch of others, but those two will, will, will make the case sufficiently. Now, everyone on this planet was created in the image and likeness of God and is worthy of dignity and honor and respect because they were created in the image and likeness of God. But only those who are in Christ are called children of God. That's a, that's a heavy concept, but it's, but it's biblical. In fact, some of the verses I gave you said, says that some are sons of the devil. That's what it says. Some are sons of children of God, and others are sons of the devil. But you, like sons of the devil, that's heavy. So not everyone's a child of God. Everyone was created in the image and likeness of God, but only those who are in Christ are children of God. So when we talk about being beloved in God the Father, as Jude says here, we must acknowledge that, yes, God loves the world. But he reserves a unique love for his children. I could give you a bunch of other scriptures. If you want to have a conversation about that, I could give you a bunch of other scriptures that make that case. Yes, God loves the world. He has a unique, personal, special love for those who are his sons and daughters. And it is those who are called his beloved. As a father, I understand this now. I understand this differently than I did before I had children. There is a unique and specific love that you have for each of your children. And a love that, though you may love the rest of the world, and, and again, our love is, God's love is far superior to ours, of course. We don't, if we could only love the way that God loves. So even God's love for the world is far superior to our love for the world. My mom used to always say to me, I, 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 you know, I don't love any one of you more than I love the other, but I love you all differently. And I was like, that, what does that mean? I don't understand that. I didn't understand what that meant until I had kids, until I had children. 
And now it's like almost defies description, but now I understand it exactly. I cannot look at any of my children. I have four of them, okay? I can't look at any of my children and go, oh, I love this child more than I love the other one. That's impossible. There's no way. I don't love any of my children more than I love the other. I love them all so much my heart could explode, okay? And yet I love them all uniquely. I love them all in different ways. It's amazing how I love all of my children. I love, I love people, and I have a special love for my children, and I have a special love, unique love, personal, individualized love for every one of my children. It's amazing. Now, let's take that idea, because that's what Jude is fleshing out here. You are beloved in God the Father. This is, your, this is Abba, Father. This is your daddy, your heavenly Father. He says, and you are dearly beloved, cherished, treasured, adored, prized by the Father. I know what that feels like. Because I feel like that about my kids. And my love is so imperfect. Imagine the perfect God who is love feeling that way towards you. Yes, God loves the world. But you need to understand that God loves you. You, personally, uniquely, in a special way that is yours and his. It's huge. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, in the New American Standard, says this. So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, those who are chosen are God's children, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It says, if you're God's children, start acting like it. In fact, Ephesians 1 makes it real clear, explicit. Look at that. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If you are a child of God, you are so dearly loved by God. You can't even wrap your brain around the kind of love that God has for you. I pray that your whole life, I pray like Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that your life would be an exercise in just expanding your understanding and awareness and acceptance of the massive love that God has for you. As Paul would say, that you would experience the height and width and length and breadth of, of God's love for you. That's my prayer for you too. And then he says, as, as, as beloved children, be imitators of God. You know how every kid, I love it. I, I remember when my son was, was real little, maybe four, and he would say, like, I, I would be in shaving or something. You know, obviously four-year-olds don't need to shave, but dad's shaving. And so he would come in, and he would want me to put shaving cream on his face, and I would give him a razor, but I'd keep the guard on. He didn't know that. He thought he was really shaving. And so I'm shaving, and he's shaving with, but he had shaving cream on his face, and he was just, he wanted to do whatever dad did. All right? And that's the picture here. He says, man, if you're a dearly loved child of God, they're be imitators of God, like a child imitates their father or their mother. <laughs> if you're a child of God, then you are one of his beloved. You're precious, adored, cherished, treasured, and prized by God. And God's love for you is unique and intensely personal. And so Jude reminds these believers that they're not only called to salvation, but they are dearly loved and personally cherished as children of God. It's a pretty cool way to start your letter. They remember that you've been called by God and you are dearly loved, treasured child of God. 
Third thing, and we're going to close with this today. We find it in verse 1 also. It says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and here's number three, kept. Kept. For Jesus Christ. This is the only New Testament letter with this word in the opening greeting. You know, all these other letters, you know, grace and peace to you. Um, you know, or describes believers as saints or describes them in some way. This is the only New Testament letter that in the greeting, this word is used. The word kept here comes from a Greek word, tareo. Probably butchered that pronunciation, but here's what it means. To guard, observe, watch over, maintain, or preserve. You are kept, you are guarded, observed, watched over, maintained, preserved. The word implies watchful care and close attention. Now, it's a present possession that actually means continually kept. Continually kept for Jesus Christ. The same word is used in Acts 12 and Acts 25 of the disciples who were in prison. It says they were kept in prison. So think you are Think imprisoned, kept, guarded, kept under guard. Instead of kept in prison, kept for Jesus Christ. Kept in the faith, kept for Christ. The same word is used in 1 Peter chapter 1 of our heavenly inheritance. It says our inheritance is kept or reserved, secured in heaven for us. These are not things that are easily shaken. They're safe, they're under guard, they're maintained, they're watched over. So here's the point in this, what he's saying here, that you're kept. He actually begins and ends his letter with reminding them that they are kept. Let's actually flip. I wasn't going to do this, but flip to the, flip to, uh, the, the end of the letter, verse 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Since God's able to keep you. Here's what, I'm, here's, here's what Jude is getting at. Conversion is a miracle. When someone passes from death to life, they say, I, I'm not following Jesus. I'm not a child of God. But now I'm saying yes to Jesus. I, I'm responding. I, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe the gospel. And I'm in. I will follow him. I will lay down my life and follow him because of his sacrifice on the cross and what he's done for me because of the fact that he's God and worthy of all my worship for all eternity. So that's conversion. Someone has passed from death to life spiritually. Okay? They've been converted from unbeliever to a believer, from a, from a dead person to somebody who's alive spiritually, okay? So conversion is a miracle, but so is preservation. Here's what I mean by that. God not only saves us, he keeps us. God not only saves us in a moment, he continually keeps us in salvation. Does that make sense? He preserves us. He preserves our faith. He guards our faith and maintains us in that state of saving grace until the final day. There is a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And the idea, the basic idea is this, that when it comes to having a genuine faith and being in that state of saving grace, that I've come into a relationship, a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I have genuine faith that has brought me into saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The idea is that if you have that, you'll never lose it. And if you lose it, you never truly had it. If you truly have that, you'll never lose it. And if you lose it, you never truly had it. 
Now, this doesn't mean that true believers can never backslide or fall into serious sin. Scripture shows us otherwise. David was called a man after God's own heart. He had a profound and passionate love for the things of God, and yet he committed adultery and conspiracy to murder. Right? What about Peter? Peter, the disciple of the Lord. He denied Jesus Christ three times and was restored. Both of these men were restored. Their fall, yes, they fell. They backstabbed, they, they fell into sin. But their fall was for a season, and they had repented and returned to the Lord. So, it, and there could be a billion other examples. So, so this doctrine doesn't mean that true believers can never backslide or fall into serious sin. It just means that they will not ultimately fall away from the faith entirely, okay? It means that they will repent. When they fall into sin, they will, that will be a season. They will repent and return to Christ Jesus. They will be kept and preserved and brought to glory by the power and grace of Jesus Christ. In fact, before Peter denied Jesus, Jesus said this. He says, Peter, Satan's asking for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. He says, when you've returned, he says, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brothers. He said, Peter, you're going to blow it. You're going to blow it. You're going to walk away from me. You're going to deny me. But, when, but I've prayed for you that as you walk away, your faith wouldn't fail. Okay? And when you return to me, because you will, strengthen your brothers. It's powerful, isn't it? Jesus is saying, you're going to fall away, but you're coming back because I prayed for you. I prayed for you. That's the keeping power of God. God doesn't just have the power to save you in one moment. He has the power to keep you in every moment. He has the power that even when you fall away into sin, he will lovingly and gently convict you and call you back and say, I'm right here. When you've returned to me, strengthen others. So our call to those who have fallen away into sin, we don't know who's falling away for real. And we don't know who's falling away for a season and will repent and return. Our call to those who've fallen away into sin is gently and lovingly to restore them and to call them to say, confirm your salvation by repenting and returning to the Lord. Prove you're a child of God by returning to him. What about those who don't? What about those who fall away entirely, who fall away permanently? I've seen this over and over again. And we don't know, listen, because many of these people are still breathing. Okay? So, so I feel like as long as you got breath in your lungs, you got a chance to return. Okay? That's what I pray. That is what I pray. God can save the hardest heart. God can, God can rescue anyone. If he can save me, man, he can save anybody. I've seen it. You've seen it. If you've been in the faith for any length of time, you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, you will see it. Those who are seen so on fire for God, so zealous and so full of passion, and Jesus is everything to them, and then to fall away from the faith and then just abandon it. If they don't return, if they don't repent and return to the Lord, and experience the mercy and grace and restoring power of Jesus Christ. They stay away permanently. What does the scripture say about that? 
Well, John says that those people, though they may have had a profession of faith and appeared to serve Jesus passionately for a time, they were never really saved, is what John says. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it would become plain that they all are not of us. The idea is this. It's that all true children of God will return to their father. God's children will eventually return to him. It's important to note, however, that this endurance in the faith doesn't rest on our strength. It is God who keeps us. And that is what Jude's getting at. He says, you are kept. You are kept by God. Now, we have, a, we have to cooperate with that. Later in the letter, he says, keeping yourselves in the love of God. <clears throat> so we have to cooperate with that. But, but it doesn't rest on our own strength, this perseverance of the saints. It is God who keeps us. Let me put it this way. We're almost done. R.C. Sproul said this. I think this little catchphrase, perseverance of the saints, is dangerously misleading. It suggests that the perseverance is something that we do, perhaps in and of ourselves. I believe that saints do persevere in faith and that those who have been effectually called by God, have been reborn by the power of the Spirit, will endure to the end. However, they persevere not because they are so diligent in making use of the mercies of God. He says, the only reason we can give why any of us continue on in the faith is because we have been preserved. So I prefer the term preservation of the saints because the process by which we are kept in that state of grace is something that is accomplished by God. My confidence, he says, is not in my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with his grace. He is going to bring us safely home. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, the last verse. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's like, who's greater than the father God? He's greater than all. And no one, because he's greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I am the father that's what it means to be kept. That's what it means to be kept for Jesus Christ. And so if you are in Christ, if you are truly a Christian, no one can snatch you out of God's hands. You may fall. You may fall big time. I may fall. And yet God says, I have the power to keep you. I have the power to guard you for that day. And until that day. So Jude opens his letter with these three amazing words for those he's writing to and for us if we're in Christ. For all those who are in Christ, these three amazing words, Jude says, you are called, beloved, and kept. 
The God who called you to salvation personally loves and cherishes you and will guard you in the faith and bring you safely home to him. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for the absolute promise of these verses, the amazing good news that Jude unpacks for us in one verse, the very beginning of this letter. We thank you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you'll breathe this out for us today here in June of 2017, God, that we would live as servants of Jesus Christ, that we would understand that our lives are not our own, but they belong to you, and that we would live willingly to serve you with joy. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand, drive deep into our hearts the conviction that we are called by you that we are beloved as children of God and that you keep us, that no one is able to snatch us out of your hand and you will bring us safely home to you. We thank you for these things. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.